Hello, everyone, and welcome to what will be one of our most interesting editions of all things aviation yet. Today, we're going to talk about considering aviation law as a career. Contrary to popular belief, aviation and law actually make for a good combination. That was a joke, guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to crack a joke, at least one lawyer joke. Just, you know, just I just had to do that. Actually, truth be told, I'm a big fan of you guys. Kathy, I've seen you in action over many years presenting at conferences and conventions like MBAA base to standing room only, a standing room only audience. Jim, I've watched you step in at the very last minute as a presenter at a major aviation award dinner to fill in for a missing presenter and handle it like you were already on the program. Loretta, I just met you, but I feel like I've known you as long as I've known Kathy and Jim. Anna and Lois and our viewers, got to tell you, you're going to enjoy some really great aviation law speak today. But before we get started with introductions and the roundtable discussion, I wanted to share with you very quickly something most of you don't know about me. Many of you have heard about my learning to fly while still in high school and that type of thing. But most of you do not know that I, to pay for my flight lessons, I had a part-time job as a law library clerk at a major law firm, not far from high school. Like many kids growing up, my parents had the aspirations of me being a doctor or a lawyer. Well, the doctor thing got ruled out pretty quickly since I practically will pass out at the sign of blood. And the possibility of being a lawyer, though, intrigued me for a hot minute until I spent a year updating law books in the law library and came to the realization just how much lawyers have to study and constantly reference. Let's just say that little job gave me a new level of respect for what it takes to be an attorney. And with that, let me introduce you to our panel of aviation attorneys. First, we have Kathy Yotis. Kathy has been representing aviation legal interests for over 34 years. She's a prodigy. She got her law degree at 10. Beginning her law aviation career as an FA, that was another joke. No, <laughs> Beginning her law no, career as an, FAA, <laughs> as an FAA attorney and manager in the uh, FAA's office of chief counsel for over 12 years before moving into private practice with Yodas Associates. She is also currently a lecturer at the College of Aeronautics and Engineering at Kent State University. Kathy is an aircraft owner and private, private pilot with a significant flying background in aviation. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you very much, Vince. Also with us is Jim Cooling. Jim is the founding, founder and managing director of Cooling and Herbers, a Kansas City-based law firm. Now, it's important for me to mention the Kansas City Midwest factor today because Kansas City Chiefs are on a roll. Right, Jim? That wasn't a joke. That was actually serious. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> um, Jim uh, is a former member of NBA's board of directors. He's also an accomplished private pilot. He's going to tell you a little bit more like about that, like that he now has a CFI, and he's an aircraft owner. Jim, thanks for being with us today. Pleased to be with you, Vince. Thank you. Thank you. And my new friend, Loretta. Loretta Akila, oh, Alkali, I said it right before the show, is an aviation attorney who specializes in issues related to compliance with federal aviation regulations, including drone rules which have made her a big fan of drone technology. Loretta was with the FAA for 30 years before retiring, 20 of which she spent as the regional counsel in New York for the FAA. Loretta currently teaches at Vaughn College of Aeronautics and Technology, which I found out is across the street from LaGuardia, 
to tell us more about the school and being across the street from LaGuardia in just a bit. Loretta, it's great meeting you and having you on the show today. Thank you, Vince. Now, as much as I love you guys, my favorite part of introducing our panel is saying hello to these aspiring young aviation professional guests that we have. Starting with Lois Oxley. Lois, an Orlando, Florida native, is currently a senior at Stetson University in DeLand, Florida. She's studying Russian, Eastern Europe, East European, Eurasian. Did I say that right? Yep, Russian, East European, and Eurasian studies. Okay, good. <laughs> with a minor in history, Brainiac. Lois <laughs> sat on Stetson's Academic <laughs> Honor Council. There you go, that confirms the Brainiac factor. She also plays a significant role with her sorority, the Alpha Chi Omega, and plans to attend law school next year to study international law. Of course, I've already told her that there are many opportunities in aviation international law. A little bias there. Lois, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And then from a slightly different perspective, we have Anna Washington, who is already in law school uh, and is currently working as a law clerk for the aviation law firm JetLaw. Anna's in her second year at Mercer University School of Law, but has already spent a few years working for law firms and learning about the different areas of law before discovering aviation law. Hola, Anna. Como esta? Hola. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. The reason I spoke to her in Spanish is because she also uh, is fluent in conversation Spanish. So I thought I'd throw that out there and show that I'm fluent too with actually four words. All right. Let's go ahead and get down to business to uh, regarding aviation career careers. Lois, I'm going to pick on you first. Because after speaking with you yesterday, I discovered that you actually have a lot of aviation in your family. So aviation law might, might, might not be much of a stretch. How about you tell us a little bit about your background and, um, and what your, your, your interest is uh, in learning more about aviation law? Yeah, so as far as my background goes, I think my first real exposure to, I guess, the realm of aviation and its regulations and all of what goes into that is hearing stories about my uncle Lonnie um, building an experimental aircraft in his backyard and going through the loops and hurdles of designating the, um, I guess, the patch of field in front of his house as an airstrip and just really kind of exploring everything that had to do with that. I've always been really fascinated with just the joys of traveling and going to the airport and spending a day or two, or sometimes three, depending on where you're going, um, and just getting to where you're going. And the magic of being able to wake up in a completely different place um, just a few hours later. So my first question for all of you is that it really seems like we are all coming from different backgrounds. Everyone has a different specializ specialization in an already very specialized field. Um, what were all of your paths to specializing in aviation law and how did you guys find yourselves in this area? <laughs> That's an intense question. <laughs> I can start because um, it was really because of a professor that I had. He was very famous and had written uh, at the time the only aviation law textbook. His name was Andreas Lowenfeld. He was um, 
a negotiator at ICAO. He had very high level government positions and he got me interested in aviation law. And then I uh, interned at an aviation firm and then I went to the FAA and the rest is history. How, how did you, uh, I'm going to jump in there and just ask you, the FAA, how did the FAA get your attention as a place to work? Well, actually, I had wanted to work in those days at the CAB, but the CAB happened to sunset as I was graduating, and um, my dean at Cornell University was, I actually interviewed with him, and he recommended going to uh, the FAA, and then um, I interviewed with Chris Hart, who was um, who was most recently the chair of the NTSB, but at the time he was a staff attorney at the Department of Transportation. So after talking and interviewing with him, I thought, you know, I would give uh, the FAA a shot. Yeah, um, the, you know, the FAA has a ton of responsibility in the regulatory world. And, and so I, over a 30-year period, I can ima only imagine all of the things that you have seen um, uh, in your responsibilities. Anything uh, that you can advise about what that path is like and, and some of the things that you did over the years? Well, there's some really good things about working for the government when you're an attorney, and that is uh, that because they're always chronically short-staffed, they let uh, young attorneys do things that a law firm would never, ever let you do. I, I think I was 28 when I argued my first case to the Court of Appeals. Now, maybe Jim could tell us whether he's ever heard of too many private law firms allowing a 28-year-old from a government agency to argue to the Court of Appeals. I, I, I did win the case. It did involve um, millions of dollars in uh, aviation trust funds. And I can tell you that the attorneys for the airport, I will not mention the airport, but the attorneys for the airport, when they found out that I was arguing the case, very kindly said to the US attorney, you're not gonna let her argue the case, are you? <laughs> well, I bet you won. <laughs> I bet you won one. I did. did. Uh, we didn't win, but um, yeah, needless to say, right before you go up before, you know, a panel of judges, but um, I, I don't think I was at the FAA a week and a half when they sent me to um, argue a case in Louisville, Kentucky uh, on a, um, an ILS, and it was like, great, I didn't know anything, and I won that too, but um, I mean, you don't always win, don't get me wrong, but really it was, it was great. The bad side of working for the government is, um, you know, the, the, the constant uh, political influence and our bosses change every couple of years and, you know, you're going left and then you go right and then you go middle. And so that part gets very difficult, but in terms of the legal work, I. I really think it's great legal work. Can you give us any perspective on the international aspect of, of uh, the Federal Aviation, uh, you know, FAA and that type of thing, it, it's especially for our young viewers and, and like our, our young professional who's uh, 
uh, going to be going into law school next year to study international law. Can you share anything regarding that? Yeah, um, I was uh, before we started. I was talking about uh, meeting with the Russian government uh, in St. Petersburg, and it was it was very exciting. Uh, the FAA is involved in a lot of international work, and of course, it does um, it manages the. Uh, a program that looks at uh, foreign governments' abilities to comply with ICAO uh, to make sure that carriers or countries that fly into the United States meet international standards. So um, the FAA has uh, a lot of uh, interaction in the international world. Now at the FAA, there's a very small international staff, but working at in New York, um, the head of the Flight Standards Office was did a lot of the international work. So I got to do a lot of uh, international travel and international work. We were also responsible in New York for um, uh, all the legal enforcement that happened in Europe and the East African parts of Asia. So yeah, yeah. it's great. Oh, I was just going to say, I was actually going to go to Kathy, because Kathy, you've worked on both sides of the fence, the, the FAA and, and private law. Um, what can you share? And tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, I, I was kind of born into aviation, if you will. Uh, grew up all around aviation because my father uh, had the, the firm that I'm with, Yotus Associates, that he began in 1960, and he was himself an accomplished uh, certificated pilot. So growing up, we as the kids were always thrown in the back of the airplane and went to this convention or on this trip that he needed to do. And, and honestly, he uh, exposed me to the role that, that there is a lot that can be used, aviation can be used in the course of business. So he was able to fly to hearings, he was able to fly to conferences, he was able to fly to meet with clients, sometimes even uh, in those days being able to fly with either the NTSB administrative lodge or even the FAA attorney, that they would catch rides with each other. So that was a nice aspect of combining aviation and law that, that made, uh, made it enjoyable. But from my perspective, I was more often in the back of the airplane falling asleep <laughs> and waiting to wake up, as you said, Lois, somewhere else and exciting and getting exposed to all different parts of the country and, and out of the country as well. But I do have to say, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't one of those people that had my nose on the uh, airport fence, Not can't wait to get into aviation, I guess maybe because I grew up in it, I took it for granted, which was a big mistake. Uh, and the same with aviation law. So I kind of evolved into it. So in high school, when I was, uh, when some people might be out at the airport learning to fly, I was more interested in being on the football field and, and doing high school girl things. And then uh, when I went to college, I studied psychology and math, never even really thinking about law. And when I graduated from college, realized what was I going to do with psychology and math. And so I decided to go to law school almost as a default. Went to law school and clerked with a, a several different firms and, and companies. And it wasn't until my third year of law school that my father suggested an internship with the FAA. 
I thought, well, that might be a good idea. So he got me an introduction because obviously he was in the business and knew the people at the FAA. And I interviewed with then was the deputy chief counsel, Ed Faberman, and they offered me a law clerk position and I started working for the FAA and really enjoyed it. Went through my third year of law school, the, the, year, the, the summer after law school and stayed with the FAA and thought, well, let me stay with the FAA a year or two or three, learn a bit of, of aviation law and then go out into private practice. Well, I really enjoyed it so much. I was there for over 12 years. I didn't expect for that to happen. And then it, just the course of natural progression decided, had enough, had, had grown enough within the agency and decided to, to jump onto the so, soft landing strip that my father had laid out for me in a law firm and came into the law firm and started in private practice. And even becoming a pilot, it took a, a few years for me to get into doing that. It uh, wasn't a, a passion right off, but I started uh, right after graduating from law school, I believe, or while I was still in law school, I, I started flying in our family's J3 Cup. So it was a tail dragger, 65 horsepower, uh, fabric-covered airplane that, uh, that you could sometimes run faster than it could fly. And, and that got me hooked. So I got my private pilot certificate basically flying the Cub and then progressed after that. So my progression into aviation wasn't immediate. And, and then the path forged, it was more of a path that I kind of stumbled onto along the way. So I encourage anybody thinking about aviation law, don't worry if it's a late thought, it's, it's still a valid and rewarding thought. And I, uh, Vince, I am thrilled that we're putting this together in, in being able to, for lack of a better term, advertise that another aviation career is aviation law. And even if it's not aviation law, as a lawyer, you can still serve your passion of aviation and having that complement your law practice. So I, I thoroughly enjoy doing what I do and would encourage anybody to, to follow whatever path in that direction they find. Yeah, thank you, Kathy. And I'm really impressed that you can outrun a J3. Um, <laughs> Sometimes. Anna. Tenth of the wind, the headwind. I'm going to go to Anna. Anna, you, you bring something unique to it as an aspiring young professional in that you're in your second year of law school at Mercer and you're working at an aviation law firm as a law clerk. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into that and, uh, and are doing what you're doing now. And by the way, are you working on your pilot's license? <laughs> I'm not. I was told that I needed to finish one academic endeavor before I moved to the next one. So I have to finish law school before I'm allowed to take any extra things on. Um, <laughs> So after okay, we'll law school, you, that's we'll the plan. We'll let you slide with that one. <laughs> I promise. It's on the horizon. I just have to finish law school first. Um, but I graduated from my undergrad with um, two degrees in international studies in Spanish, so very similar to Lois, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I was like, well, I'll just go work for a few law firms for a year or two and see if I like the feel. Um, ended up really liking law because of the connections you can make with people and kind of being able to provide solutions to people when they may not be able to provide them for themselves. And so um, finally decided to, to go to law school and I had no idea that aviation law was even an area. Um, 
my family does not like traveling when I grew up. So I was kind of completely new to it. But a girl I go to school with, she just graduated, uh, told me about Jet Law where she was working. And I just was completely enamored as soon as I found out about it. I think um, aviation law just totally um, expanded how I love connections and how I think law does that. And so it was really nice to kind of um, join the two passions of mine. Um, and I just think it's so interesting. It's, it connects everything. It touches on every different kind of area of law. So there's never the same day. It's never um, boring or a typical day in the office, which I kind of love. Um, so, so far I'm in love with it. I think it's amazing. Um, awesome. Do you have a question for any of our panelists? I do. I have, I have so many questions, so forgive me. Um, I'm going to start with the first one, which is what do you see as the most urgent or most recent reason of why we need more upcoming professionals in the aviation industry? Your question uh, regarding, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Jim. If the question is professionals or uh, you're talking about lawyers in the aviation industry, Anna, is that? I think I think my, my question may be more towards professionals in general, just up across the board, not necessarily in law, but also in law. That makes sense. Well, um, before I answer that, if, if, if you want me to give my thoughts on that, I just want to say with regard to Kathy Yotas, um, hearing her presentation reminds me of her father and her father's uh, commitment to aviation law. And then Kathy, when she left the FAA, uh, wrote a uh, column for Flight Training Magazine for the AOPA. And if uh, anybody wants to read about what the law uh, is and applies, I'd say go back and read Kathy's articles. You know? So I'm sorry, I just wanted to mention that before Kathy finished. Um, I think in aviation law, uh, you've got a need for the for the FAA, you know, to have really good lawyers. The better lawyers you have, the more knowledgeable they are in aviation, the, the better our system all works together. Uh, you've got uh, national associations. You've got uh, EOPA and uh, GAMA and uh, EAA. They have all recently, well, not how recently, but they all have excellent um Council, general councils, and they're always, you know, looking for, for people to work with them. Uh, you forget about the insurance industry. The insurance industry is insuring all these things that, that are going on. And uh, a lot of claims and, and uh, underwriting issues. If you don't get insurance, you can't fly you know, for most people. And so there's an aviation law aspect of that. Uh, and then on the corporate side, you've got the manufacturers that are just all going through this very difficult time now, but they all have, you know, great flight departments and a lot of opportunities in those. But, uh, and then you've got the private practice, uh, the private law firms that are doing aviation. I can tell you in tax, it's a very, you know, it's an exciting time from the standpoint of 100% bonus depreciation. Uh, all the issues that, that go on with regard Tax. I mean, almost all our deals now are are not only driven by you know a business or personal use, but the tax aspect is uh, important. And my son James uh, also went to law school a number of years back, and I told him, whatever you do, take all the tax you can. Uh, so uh, if you're a um, you know if if you have any interest in that, I would say that's a 
that's an inter- an area that's in high demand. Jim, what what inspired you to to found your law firm? What what was the impetus for that? Um, well, my background was was I was flew as a young. I mean, by the time I was twenty five, I had all my ratings, you know? and um, then. I'm sorry. Uh, so you're you're a private pilot. You have multi. I think you have a type rating in uh, citation. I do. I and do. you're certified flight instructor. Did I leave so it before, before I went to law school, actually, I had a commercial instrument, Mully engine, and flight instructor rating. Okay. okay. Were you so, aspiring I, to be a professional pilot, or you just wanted to have all of those I, ratings? I really kind of wanted to be a professional pilot. My father was an airline pilot, but. Like you, I didn't have a 2020 vision, so I couldn't go in the military. I couldn't fly on the airline. So I was trying to figure out how I could tie aviation with, with a career. And my father had been flying for a long time in the, in the Sabre liners. And he suggested to me that, Jim, you might want to try and figure out a career where you can not only fly, but you get to ride around in the back of the airplane once in a while. <laughs> and... Um, so I, uh, I went to law school, and when I graduated from law school, then it's how do you tie that together with, you know, where are the jobs, what are you going to do? And it's sort of a long way of backing into this, but there, were not, there weren't any aviation law firms. Or if there were, I didn't know about them. I didn't know about your dad, Kathy, at that point. And um, so I went to work. Well, actually, I clerked for a federal clerkship. I mean, if you're on the law review, you're going to get attention from the private firms. If you clerk, you're going to, you know, federal or state Supreme Courts, you're going to get attention from the firms. And so I was able to get hired by one of the firms in Kansas City. It was a Kansas City blue blood firm that represented the Kansas City Chiefs and people like that. And uh, so I was there for five years, but I just had this and and not doing uh, aviation. I was doing litigation defending automobile crashes, you know, and I was thinking, oh my God, you know, it's got to do something more interesting than this. And uh, I was able to start generating aviation business, mostly through my father's contacts and uh, started my own firm. And after five years of private practice, and we have, uh, we have done, I would say very, our law firm has done very well. And we have a, like the mothership for a number of law firms around the country. Very talented people. Yeah, that's 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 a great thing. So so you you fell in love. You were already in love with aviation. You just figured out a way to pull it all together so it was something that could be a part of your life uh, professionally as well as personally. Right. But like Kathy, I used to ride in the, with my father all the time, and uh, in the airplanes, we took our family vacations in the airplanes, and I got sick all the time. I was a little kid. I wasn't sure I was ever going to be a pilot. And uh, yeah. as I got as I got older and could see over the, over the dash, I got more interesting. Kathy, I'm curious, uh, were there many law, law firms when your dad started uh, Yotus? Aviation, aviation. dedicated law A- yeah. firms? Aviation no. dedicated, I meant. Yeah. No, I, no, not at all. And I, I think it's only been in probably the last uh, couple of decades where there are law firms that are able to make a constant living at just aviation law. For the most part, when you run into aviation lawyers, they are ones who are part of a a law firm or an office that does other work, and aviation law is a slice of it. 
So uh, the fact that we have uh, many law firms now that, that are able to stay within the practice of aviation law, I think is, is really lucky. But I wouldn't discount being able to go to a firm and carving out a practice area within that firm that includes aviation. So it may not be your exclusive workload, but it is a part of your workload that gives you that ability to tie your interest with your work. And, and even with aviation law, I don't know if we've, we've made this point yet, but aviation law is almost a misnomer in my view. For the most part, I think the law that we practice is a general practice law. It's just that there is a pilot or a mechanic or a flight school or an airport or an air carrier or some aviation subject matter at the heart of it. So we're doing transactional work of contracts, we're doing leases, we're doing compliance with government uh, regulations, we're, we're having grant agreements with the government, we're doing crash litigation. So it, it, I, I view it as anybody can come in here and do this if they're interested and they want to tie the aviation law aspect into it because it's, it's law. It's just an aviation subject matter, and that can often give those of us who love aviation the added oomph to go to work, because work is not always something we want to go to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lois, um, okay, you leave me speechless on that one, but that's true. It's, 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 it's always great to, to be able to do something that you love. I was going to Lois, because Lois, with everything that you've heard from all three of our, our attorneys, um, I wanted to see if you had another question or another thought uh, about uh, uh, aviation law. Yeah, I guess to kind of build off of um, Anna's question with, I mean, why really get, why you should get more um, young professionals involved in aviation law or in that realm. Um, it seems that there's this big push for more independent or I guess aviation law focused law firms. Um, and there's a growing field in that manner. What do you, I guess, what do all three of you perceive as the future of aviation law? You know, before the next they, 10 years, before they answer that, I, I, I'd like to just give my perspective on the industry and it's kind of uh, piggybacking a little bit off of also what Anna asked and that's the industry itself. The, the industry is growing at a phenomenal rate. And even with the, the factors of COVID-19, et cetera, business aviation, general aviation, uh, the commercial aviation has its challenges for the moment, but, but aviation overall, and, and, and all of you guys could speak even more specifically to that, is, is growing and it's expanding and is, is, uh, it's picking up a lot of momentum and, and that, that is opening up a lot of new opportunities and, and that type of thing. The other category that hasn't really been brought up but so far in this discussion is on the aerospace side. And with all of the things that are happening on the aerospace side with uh, firms like uh, SpaceX and, and Blue Horizon, or Blue Origin, I'm sorry, and um, the new things that are happening with Boeing, with NASA, et cetera, and so forth, that, that opens up a, a whole nother area with it. To you guys. I was going to say that there's huge growth in commercial space and in unmanned uh, aircraft. And the law is not settled at all when it comes to uh, UASs, unmanned uh, 
aircraft unmanned aerial systems. So for lawyers who like a challenge, this is going to be a really exciting time. The, um, the GAO, uh, the Government Accountability Office just did a, uh, I think a one year study. And what it really basically says is the major areas of law that there's no agreement on and not settled. And these have to be settled in order for the industry to grow. So there's going to be a lot of need for attorneys in that area. Um, so I think that uh, that's a really big growth area. And for people that are concerned because they wanted to be manned aircraft pilots, their are going to be uh, hugely important in the growth of the unmanned uh, aerial system space. Uh, Jim or Kathy, did you want to chime in on that? Okay, I'll chime in. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Kathy. No, I was going to affirm that. I think that, that, that there is a lot of opportunity in aviation to, uh, to make it a focus for somebody who wants to, to get into the industry and to grow. And honestly, we see a lot of aviation lawyers that start out in the practice of law and move into other positions in aviation. So it is sometimes a springboard that can can put you into maybe another position that interests you, whether that's an association or company executive role, or even within the FAA, we saw some of the FAA lawyers move from the FAA Office of Chief Counsel down to the FAA Office of Airports or down to the FAA Office of Air Traffic Control. So uh, certainly, you know, going to law school and, and going to college and to law school, these are areas where you can, can build your uh, your ability to move into these roles, you're smart, you're, you're, you're learning, and the adaption with that kind of history behind you really does open a lot of doors. So I, I think even within aviation law, but then beyond aviation law, there are a lot of opportunities within this industry for somebody who has a law degree. I would like Jimbo, you had something, go ahead. Yeah, I think that I always like reaffirming what Loretta and Kathy say, because I think they're both, they're both great thoughts. Uh, on the drone side, um, just think of the people who are traveling around the world, and we happen to have some clients who have you know, large yachts that, that travel the world, and they have drones on their yachts, and they have two or three drones. And so now they're you know, they've got guests and they're, they're, you know, in some foreign country and they're flying these, these drones. Are they going to get thrown in jail? What are the rules of the country that they're going to? And uh, we've been asked, uh, at least by one client, we had to put together a worldwide analysis of, you know, the Mediterranean, the, you know, the Caribbean, the, the, you know, all the places that they might stop, which I thought was in interesting. But it also brings up the international aspect that Lois was talking about. Uh, in this worldwide economy, uh, the key to, the, to getting this business 
you know, back. I mean, the borders are all closed right now. I mean, business is sort of stopped where you can't do face-to-face. You know, people can't fly their, their you know, G650s to, to the EU to do business. And you can't, you can't go over there to inspect one if you want to buy one right now. So as soon as those borders get opened up again, we need, we need to have these aircraft, you know, flying again worldwide. And from a lawyer's perspective, when you're representing an international company that's doing that, you've got to worry about, you know, all the EU regulations. You've got to worry about all the other things. And uh, we, we have been fortunate to be dealing with, you know, in India and, and Russia and Germany and Thailand. And I mean, it's incredible all the things you have to learn. And most of the, of the deals are, all of them are in English, you know, but uh, they're not always. I mean, there's, there's documents that you would like to really know. Uh, and uh, we had a paralegal on our staff that was uh, from Georgia, and she was terrific because she could read, you know, Georgian, you know, Russian, French, you know, that sort of thing. So having people like that on your staff, I think, is very helpful. Speaking of languages, Lois, you've learned how many languages so far? Yeah. I, Russian is my fifth language that I have studied. Um, I am not fluent in all those five languages by any means. Um, And I'm sure, Anna, you can attest to um, majoring in a language in college and having to keep up with that language or else you lose it. Uh, But yeah, I mean, studying, what is this? German, Japanese, Arabic, Russian, and now working on French. It's been it's been a roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like from what it, Jim yeah. and and everybody has said though it, it it's going to come in handy for your law career. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. You have all those languages and tax. Wow, we'll hire you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just changes got a job class offer. schedule, <laughs> right? Can I get that in writing? <laughs> changes my class schedule to fit tax class. <laughs> Anna, you said you had some other questions. Do you want to go ahead and uh, you had another question for our panel? I do. um, I'm going to piggyback off of the drone conversation because one of my questions was about space and the privatization of space. But I'm going to piggyback off off the drone conversation, um, understanding that technology is advancing and expanding capabilities of drones. Um, There are companies out there that are currently making them suitable or working to make them suitable for transportation. So what do you as panelists see as the biggest, biggest obstacles you've experienced or foresee experiencing with technology expanding drone capabilities? Well, the, the biggest legal obstacles right now are that you can't fly beyond visual line of sight and you can't fly over people without special waivers. So those are the two biggest. And then anything over uh, 55 pounds requires special exemptions, et cetera. And there are no uh, drone air carrier specific rules. So the three companies or three or four companies that have air carrier certificates basically have uh, air taxi certificates, manned aircrafts, uh, manned air taxi certificates with exemptions. So the future has to have the rules grow to fit the industry. And we're not there yet. And now I agree in the in that this unmanned area, there's a lot of development and we're underdeveloped. 
and and as Loretta indicated, even with the FAA rules, they haven't caught up. And so we are in a position of sometimes using existing rules and trying to shoehorn the unmanned systems into that, but then creating exemptions for them. So this is a rich area for growth in the law, not to mention the other aspects of the law that are associated with, associated with unmanned systems, which is insurance, which are your local laws and, and rules and, and even liability issues. So there's a lot of law to be worked on in, in that area. And I think that you'll find a lot of the firms are trying to develop practice groups in that area, but it does take some dedicated uh, focus because it changes, as Loretta said earlier, it changes almost every day. So unless, and, and even as it relates to speaking a foreign language, unless you're keeping up with it actively, it, it's, uh, it's hard to kind of get reacquainted uh, in, in, in hindsight. So if you're interested in it, I would certainly encourage anybody to stay abreast of the issues so that when you're ready to jump into a position and, and be able to use those skills, you've got the ready ability to do it. Kathy, is there a, a, a law, aviation law case that stands out to you that was really challenging that might be uh, a great thing that you could share a little bit with us on? Hmm. I've been at this too long. There's so many of them. Um, I, you know, I, I, I don't know that there's been a particular case that would stand out amongst all of them, uh, which I think is, is good news that I, I have been very fortunate to have handled many different kinds of cases. Again, whether they're maintenance or transactional or airports, I've been lucky to appear before the NTSB within the FAA uh, for probably a good half dozen or more of the, the varying U.S. courts of appeals, as well as some local courts in, in the states and even with the IRS. So uh, I, 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 I'm, I wish I could say there was something that maybe stands out more than others, but I think I, I feel very privileged to have had so many experiences that they all seem to stand out individually. So what and all my clients. I'm sorry? And all my clients, all of my clients are individually treasures, whether they were within the FAA and I'm now fighting with them or in <laughs> private practice. I've always enjoyed my clients. What would the three of you recommend, for example, for Lois? She's, she's about to go to law school next fall uh, in terms of what she should do uh, in, with law in general, but just in her preparation to go to law school and further consideration of opportunities in aviation law? I have one word that I, I, I always encourage uh, students when I'm able to, and, and I'm sure that Loretta and Jim can, can chime in, networking. Uh, Take advantage of every opportunity you have to go to a class, to go to a dinner, to go to a meeting, to go to a webinar. Join as many organizations as your budget will allow and go to their meetings and, and keep in contact. I mean, now emails are so easy. Send an email every once in a while, a Christmas email, because you just never know when those contacts are going to help you. And I could, I could tell you countless stories of how the contacts have, have 
boosted people in their careers. And even most recently with the pandemic, I was at a meeting uh, a few weeks ago involving uh, someone in the airline industry who was moving their line of business into the cargo area because that was a way to keep revenue going for them. And this person was telling the story of how he had to, didn't have to, he pulled on his network to say, hey, who's out there that can help us make this transition and do it successfully and well? And it was obviously a very, to me, it was obviously a very good example of how maintaining those contacts come to help you maybe when you least expect it. So I would say networking. Networking is a very important thing to start now and, and, and build on. Jim, Loretta? I have a, I definitely agree with what Kathy said, but I think one of the uh, underlooked areas of the law is the importance of creativity. You have to be creative. You have to be able to see the law, the law's potential for your client and how it could be used. So I would encourage you to have a broad um, education, even at, in law school. So go to museums, listen to concerts. They all provide, I think, creative inspiration. And sometimes the law requires a lot of creativity, um, you know, in terms of making arguments. And I think that uh, in addition to the, the creativity part of it, you have to be able to relate to people in many different levels, right? So your clients aren't always going to be from your same exact background. So it's good to have something to be able to talk about that isn't their tragic case or their business. It, it's a way to make you more, I think, relatable. And uh, I think provide better advice, especially on a continuing basis. So that would be my advice. Good thoughts, good thoughts. I would add to that, that, you know, have fun and uh, work hard and uh, think about what your resume is gonna look like when you're in your second year uh, and uh, what it's gonna look like for when you graduate. And if you can get a, a first year, clerkship or second year clerkship like Hannah's doing in, in a firm, it's terrific. Uh, but also think that if your your goal is to work for maybe a large national firm with your background and you know that that might be what you want to do. Uh, remember that it's very competitive and if you can you know work and be on the law review, you're gonna have one step up because uh, the large firms you know typically hire at that level. And then a lot of the major firms do not even hire you unless they've seen your second year clerkship experience. They just hire from the second year clerkships. So when you at least have an idea how that works, it's not like you just graduated and say, oh, I'd like to do this. And some of those paths may have, you know, not be open to you anymore. Anna, besides tax law and, and moving to Kansas City eventually, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but have you started to hone in on what you think you want to do in the realm of aviation law and, and with what you've experienced thus far, especially since you've worked for a couple of law firms 
uh, with general law practices and, and now you're specific to aviation? I, um, I, I appreciate the transactional side of aviation law. So that is what I find most interesting at the moment. I worked in a few firms where they do uh, heavy litigation and I don't think that is my calling at the moment, at least for when I graduate. So um, the goal is to get to Washington, D.C. That's where I have an interest in moving. Um, so that's how I got connected with Jet Law, actually. Um, so the goal is to kind of stay in the transactional side and uh, be in D.C. Got you. And, and uh, we only have about 10 minutes left, so I wanted to make sure that I gave you and Lois, an opportunity to maybe ask one other question. Did you have another question for the panel? Sure. I would love to ask about the privatization of uh, space and, and how you foresee that kind of expanding and growing as we move forward in the aviation industry and technology moves forward. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. I'm not a space lawyer. I know space lawyers, uh, and, and I encourage you, to, to reach out to them and to ask that question if that is an area of, of interest to you. You'll find, I, I think, in, in aviation, in the community at large, but also in the aviation law community, that, that we're open to conversations. Uh, I, I constantly get emails that somebody says, do you mind if I run some things past you uh, and, and mentoring opportunities within aviation law? So I, I would, from what I know of the area, there's a lot of development, a lot of argument going on. Some of it may be resolved with some legislation, others with litigation in terms of what works, maybe what doesn't work, so they have to regroup and do again. But I think that's another area where they're trying to make some of the changes based on the experience in other, other areas of aviation. But I really, I think I'm out of my wheelhouse and would encourage you to reach out to a space lawyer unless Jim and, or, or uh, Loretta, you have some experience in that area. Yeah, I don't have, I'm not a commercial space lawyer either, but I do have concerns just being, you know, a citizen um, about the privatization. I, I have concerns. I understand uh, the need for technology to move faster than government. But I do have concerns about, uh, you know, where it's all going to go. And I have a lot of concern about space debris and things like that. So, so you have environmental concerns. Well, I have a lot of concerns about that. Is <laughs> one of them. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, are we going to have private colonizations of of Mars and Jupiter or, you know, so I, I understand why it's being privately led right now, but that doesn't mean I don't think there should be some kind of overarching structure. Yeah, I, I actually, I hear you on that. I think that if you really think about it, there are a lot of concerns overall. And, and I'm going to bring it back to you in terms of the drone technology with the expansion of drone technology and the number of drones that, we are going to be looking at not too far down the road for combination of both personal and commercial use. The commercial one seems to be really picking up in terms of delivery drones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I would imagine you would know more about that than me. But from what I've observed and what I've seen so far, that's an industry that is growing rapidly, but it's also 
you, you, you wonder how it's going to play out um, in terms of, again, the number of drones that could eventually be uh, out there in the air. Well, I, I do think that uh, there, there's going to be a total rethinking of the airspace, I believe. And I think that, uh, I think there's going to be drones that are going to be like major airlines, at least in the cargo sector. So some of them are going to be integrated and, you know, in major cargo aircraft. The smaller urban type deliveries, I think we're going to have to rethink. I personally believe that the deliveries can't be on the ground in cities. They're going to have to be at the rooftop level to avoid, you know, catastrophes. So I think that it's going to require a lot of reimagining and there is a lot of work being done on urban air mobility and specific uh, air traffic control or UTM, unmanned traffic management. So I think that that is happening right now. It's completely constrained by the laws. Uh, so that I think is, I, I think the people that are pushing it are going to continue to push it and eventually the law will change to accommodate the technology. Yeah, that comes back to creative thinking, as you were just saying earlier, as, as an attorney. Uh, let me give Lois a chance. If, Lois, uh, before we run out of time, I just wanted to see if you had one final question to ask everybody. I mean, it looks like we're running out of time a little bit, but I'm curious um, for our panelists what you all think of, what do you have to have to be an aviation lawyer? Like, do you have to have your pilot's license? Do you have to fly a plane? What does, what is one consistency? You have to have your airline transport rating. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I might start on that. I mean, we have a law firm and a team that is made up of a lot of, a lot of different uh, aviation lawyers, but not all of them are, uh, you know, pilot pilots. They have different specialties. I've already mentioned tax, uh, SEC, um, litigation. We, we, we do defense litigation. And uh, I think that there's a lot of area there. I think if, for our lawyers who are not pilots, you know, they, they learn the, you know, they learn about aviation and this, it's exciting for them. And then the people who are involved in aviation and own these airplanes are all exciting people. And you can go to the movies and see your clients and you can, you know, watch them on TV. You can read about them in the magazines. Uh, so that's my thought. And I agree with that. I think uh, your legal talent is first and foremost going to measure your success in aviation law. But, but having the interest, having the experience, my personal opinion is that it does enrich those talents. It may not be necessary for those talents, but I think it enriches the, the talents that you, you bring to an aviation case. And over the years, I've, I've experienced the, the talking back to what Loretta was mentioning about relatable, sometimes you're able to kind of connect a little better, a little deeper with your clients if they feel that you have some aviation background that may be similar to them or maybe something that they had been interested in and didn't get to, whether it's a mechanic certificate or uh, we've even seen lawyers come in uh, after uh, some 
experience in the industry as a flight attendant. Uh, so it could be any sort of aviation experience that you may bring to your legal talents that help enrich or connect with your clients in, in a bit of a deeper way, but I, it's, it's not necessary. Uh, until I got my drone license, um, I really had no interest at all in flying. I loved aviation law, and I didn't care that much about aviation. I liked the legal issues. So, so I would tell you, you don't have to be an aviation geek, uh, but I do see the difference between my drone work and the, the other work. A lot of things that happen now affect me as a drone pilot. And so that is a very different Perspective. Perspective, yeah. I'd like to add that our transactional lawyers are terrific, and they're not all pilots. And uh, my father used to tell me that, you know, airplanes are one-third metal, two-thirds paperwork. Well, you know, that's really the truth now. It's really, it's really more than that. And uh, we, as a law firm, if, if we like and, uh, you know, a lawyer that has joined us, we offer to pay for them to, to learn to fly. And several of our lawyers have, have uh, taken that advantage of that. Well, so, guys, we're, we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but I, I just wanted to real quick, I, I, want to, I want to mess with Loretta. She has a picture behind her that was, was taken from a drone. Is that right, Loretta? Yes, yes. It's uh, in Key Biscayne at uh, Grand Park. Gotcha. And, and did you have a drone there with you? Because you have you own several of them, don't you? Several, about ten. But this is the one that <laughs> that I mostly fly. It's a uh, DJI Mavic Two Pro, and looks like an alien drone. Because <laughs> it's great. It has a Hasselblad camera lens, which, if you know, is one of the best uh, camera manufacturers. And it's just very easy to take with you because it's small and weighs very little. Thank you very much, everybody. I, I really appreciate having all of you on the program today. Uh, that's a wrap for us for this week's All Things Aviation webcast. We hope that those of you watching, as well as our aspiring young aviation professional guests, found the information and insight from our aviation attorney guests helpful, enlightening, and inspiring. Next Thursday, we will do our first show of the series on opportunities in aerospace, speaking of aerospace today. On the aerospace side of the industry, we have some guests from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory out there in California, as well as Northrop Grumman, also in California, uh, to talk about uh, opportunities in aerospace. I'm Vince Mickens. Be safe, stay healthy, fly safe, blue skies. Have a good one. Thank you, Vince. Thank you, Vince. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you everyone. Take care.